Jack Smart, Sensations and Brain Processes. Suppose that I report that I have at this moment a roundish, blurry-edged afterimage, which is yellowish towards its edge and orange towards its centre. What is it that I am reporting? One answer to this question might be that I am not reporting anything, that when I say that it looks to me as though there is a roundish, yellowy, orange patch of light on the wall, I am expressing some sort of temptation. The temptation to say that there is a roundish, yellowish, orange patch on the wall, though I may know that there is not such a patch on the wall. This is perhaps Wittgenstein's view in the philosophical investigations. Similarly, when I report a pain, I am not really reporting anything, or if you like, I am reporting in a queer sense of reporting but I'm doing a sophisticated sort of wince. I prefer most of the time to discuss an after image rather than a pain, because the word pain brings in something which is irrelevant to my purpose, the notion of distress. I think that he is in pain entails he is in distress. That is, that he is in a certain agitation condition. Similarly, to say I am in pain may be to do more than replace pain behaviour. It may be partly to report something, though this something is quite non-mysterious, being an agitation condition, and so susceptible of behavioristic analysis. The suggestion I wish, if possible, to avoid is a different one, namely that I am in pain is a genuine report, and that what it reports is an irreducibly physical something. And similarly, the suggestion I wish to resist is also to say I have a yellowish-orange afterimage is to report something irreducibly physical. Why do I wish to resist this suggestion? Mainly because of Occam's razor. It seems to me that science is increasingly giving us a viewpoint whereby organisms are able to be seen as physico-chemical mechanisms. It seems that even the behaviour of man himself will one day be explicable in mechanistic terms. There does seem to be, so far as science is concerned, nothing in the world but increasingly complex arrangements of physical constituents, all except for one place, in consciousness. That is, for a full description of what is going on in a man, you would have to mention not only the physical processes in his tissue, glands, nervous system, and so forth, but also his states of consciousness, his visual, auditory and tactile sensations, his aches and pains. That these should be correlated with brain processes does not help, for to say that they are correlated is to say that they are something over and above. You cannot correlate something with itself. You correlate footprints with burglars, but not Bill Sykes the burglar with Bill Sykes the burglar.
So sensations, states of consciousness, do seem to be one sort of thing left outside the physicalist picture. And for various reasons, I just cannot believe that this can be so. That everything should be explicable in terms of physics, together, of course, with descriptions of the way in which these parts are put together, roughly biology is to physics as radio engineering is to electromagnetism. Except the occurrence of sensations seems to me to be frankly unbelievable. Such sensations would be nominological danglers, to use Fiegel's expression. It is not often realised how odd would be the laws whereby these nominological danglers would dangle. It is something asked, why can't there be psychophysical laws which are of a novel sort, just as the laws of electricity and magnetism were novelties from the standpoint of Newtonian mechanics? Certainly, we are pretty sure in the future to come across new, ultimate laws of a novel type but I expect them to relate to simple constituents. For example, whatever ultimate particles are then in vogue. I cannot believe that ultimate laws of nature could relate simple constituents to configurations consisting of perhaps billions of neurons and goodness knows how many billion billions of ultimate particles all put together for the world as though their main purpose in life was to be a negative feedback mechanism of a complicated sort. Such ultimate laws would be like nothing so far known in science. They have a queer smell to them. I am just unable to believe in the nominological danglers themselves or in the laws whereby they would dangle. If any philosophical arguments seem to compel us to believe in such things, I would suspect a catch in the argument. In any case, it is the object of this paper to show that there are no philosophical arguments which compel us to be dualists. The above is largely a confession of faith, but it explains why I find Wittgenstein's position, as I construe it, so congenial. For on this view there are, in a sense, no sensations. A man is a vast arrangement of physical particles, but there are not, over and above this, sensations or states of consciousness. There are just behavioural facts about this vast mechanism, such as it expresses a temptation, behaviour disposition, to say there is a yellowish-red patch on the wall or that it goes through a sophisticated sort of wince, that is, says, I am in pain. Admittedly, Wittgenstein says that though the sensation is not a something, it is nevertheless not a nothing either. But this need only mean that the word ache has a use, and ache is a thing but only in the innocuous sense in which the plain man in the first paragraph of Frege's Foundations of Arithmetic answers the question, what is the number one? By a thing. It should be noted that when I assert that to say I have a yellowish-orange afterimage is to express a temptation to assert the physicalist object statement there is a yellowish-orange patch on the wall.
I mean that saying I have a yellowish orange after image is partly the exercise of the disposition, which is the temptation. It is not to report that I have the temptation any more than is I love you normally a report that I love someone. Saying I love you is just a part of the behavior, which is the exercise of the disposition of loving someone. Though, for reasons given above, I am very receptive to the above expressive account of sensation statements. I do not feel that it will quite do the trick. Maybe this is because I have not thought it out sufficiently. But it does seem to me as though when a person says, I have an after image, he is making a genuine report. And that when he says, I have a pain, he is doing something more than replace pain behavior. And that this more is not just to say that he is in distress. I am not so sure, however, that to admit this is to admit that there are non-physical correlates of brain processes. Why should not sensations just be brain processes of a certain sort? There are, of course, well-known as well as lesser-known philosophical objections to the view that reports of sensations are reports of brain processes. But I shall try to argue that these arguments are by no means as cogent as is commonly thought to be the case. Let me first try to state more accurately the thesis that sensations are brain processes. It is not the thesis that, for example, after image or ache means the same as brain processes of sort X where X is replaced by a description of a certain sort of brain process. It is that, insofar as an afterimage or ache is a report of a process, it is a report of a process that happens to be a brain process. It follows that the thesis does not claim that sensation statements can be translated into statements about brain processes, nor does it claim that the logic of a sensation statement is the same as that of a brain process statement. All it claims is that insofar as a sensation statement is a report of something, that something is in fact a brain process. Sensations are nothing over and above brain processes. Nations are nothing over and above citizens, but this does not prevent the logic of nation statements being very different from the logic of citizen statements. Nor does it ensure the translatability of nation statements into citizen statements. I do not, however, wish to assert that the relation of sensation statements to brain process statements is very like that of nation statements to citizen stations. Nations do not just happen to be nothing over and above citizens, for example. I bring in the nation's example merely to make a negative point, that the fact that the logic of A statements is different from the logic of B statements does not ensure that A's are anything over and above B's. Remarks on Identity 
When I say that a sensation is a brain process or that lightning is an electric discharge, I am using is in the sense of strict identity. Just as in the, in this case, necessary proposition, seven is identical with the smallest prime number greater than five. When I say that a sensation is a brain process or that lightning is an electrical discharge, I do not mean just that the sensation is somehow spatially or temporally continuous with the brain process or that the lightning is just spatially or temporally continuous with the discharge. When on the other hand, I say that the successful general is the same person as the small boy who stole the apples, I mean only that the successful general I see before me is a time slice of the same four-dimensional object of which the small boy stealing apples is an earlier time slice. However, the four-dimensional object which has the general I see before me for its late time slice is identical in the strict sense with the four-dimensional object which has the small boy stealing apples for an early time slice. I distinguish these two senses of is identical with because I wish to make it clear that the brain process doctrine asserts identity in the strict sense. I shall now discuss various possible objections to the view that the processes reported in sensation statements are in fact processes in the brain. Most of us have met some of these objections in our first year as philosophy students. All the more reason to take a good look at them. Others of the objections will be more recondite and subtle. Objection 1. Any illiterate peasant can talk perfectly well about his after images, or how things look or feel to him, or about his aches and pains, and yet he may know nothing whatever about neurophysiology. A man may, like Aristotle, believe that the brain is an organ for cooling the body without any impairment of his ability to make true statements about his sensations. Hence, the things we are talking about when we describe our sensations cannot be processes in the brain. Reply. You might as well say that a nation of slugabeads who never saw the morning star or knew of its existence, or who had never thought of the expression the morning star, but who used the expression the evening star perfectly well, could not use this expression to refer to the same entity as we refer to and describe as the morning star. You may object that the morning star is, in a sense, not the very same thing as the evening star, but only something spatio-temporally continuous with it. That is, you may say that the morning star is not the evening star in the strict sense of identity that I distinguished earlier. I can perhaps forestall this objection by considering the Slugabeds to be New Zealanders and the early risers to be Englishmen. Then the thing the New Zealanders describe as the morning star could be the very same thing in the strict sense as the Englishmen describe as the evening star. 
and yet they could be ignorant of this fact. There is, however, a more plausible example. Consider lightning. Modern physical science tells us that lightning is a certain kind of electrical discharge due to ionization of clouds and water vapor in the atmosphere. This, it is now believed, is what the true nature of lightning is. Note that there are not two things, a flash of lightning and an electrical discharge. There is one thing, a flash of lightning, which is described scientifically as an electrical discharge to the earth from a cloud of ionized water molecules. The case is not at all like that of explaining a footprint by reference to a burglar. We say that what lightning really is, what its true nature as revealed by science is, is an electrical discharge. It is not the true nature of a footprint to be a burglar. To forestall irrelevant objections, I should like to make it clear that by lightning, I mean the publicly observable physical object lightning, not a visual sense datum of lightning. I say that the publicly observable physical object lightning is in fact the electrical discharge, not just a correlate of it. The sense datum, or at least the having of the sense datum, the look of lightning, may well, in my view, be a correlate of the electrical discharge. For in my view, it is a brain state caused by the lightning. But we should no more confuse sensations of lightning with lightning than we confuse sensations of a table with the table. In short, the reply to objection one is that there can be contingent statements of the form A is identical with B, and a person may well know that something is an A without knowing that it is a B. An illiterate peasant might well be able to talk about his sensations without knowing about his brain processes, just as he can talk about lightning, though he knows nothing of electricity. Objection 2. It is only a contingent fact, if it is a fact, that when we have a certain kind of sensation, there is a certain kind of process in our brain. Indeed, it's possible, though perhaps in the highest degree unlikely, that our present physiological theories will be as out of date as the ancient theory connecting mental processes with goings-on in the heart. It follows that when we report a sensation, we are not reporting a brain soap process. Reply. The objections certainly prove that when I say, I have an after image, we cannot mean something different of the form, I have such and such a brain process. But this does not show that what we report, having an after image, is not in fact a brain process. I see lightning does not mean I see an electrical discharge. Indeed, it is logically possible, though highly unlikely, that the electrical discharge account of lightning might one day be given up. Again, I see the evening star does not mean the same as I see the morning star. And yet, the evening star and the morning star are one and the same thing, is a contingent proposition. 
Possibly objection to derives some of its apparent strength from a Fido, Fido theory of meaning. If the meaning of an expression were what the expression named, then of course it would follow from the fact that sensation and brain process have different meanings that they cannot name one and the same thing. Objection 4. The after image is not in physical space. The brain process is. So the after image is not a brain process. Reply. This is an ignoratio elenchi. I am not arguing that the after image is a brain process, but that the experience of having an after image is a brain process. It is the experience which is reported in the introspective report. Similarly, if it is objected that the after image is a yellowy orange, but that a surgeon looking into your brain would see nothing yellowy orange, my reply is that this is the experience of seeing yellowy orange that is being described. And this experience is not a yellowy orange something. So to say that a brain process cannot be yellowy orange is not to say that a brain process cannot in fact be the experience of having a yellowy orange after image. There is, in a sense, no such thing as an after image or a sense datum. Though there is such a thing as the experience of having an image, and this experience is described indirectly in material object language, not in phenomenological language, for there is no such thing. We describe the experience by saying, in effect, that it is like the experience we have when, for example, we see a yellowy-orange patch on the wall. Trees and wallpaper can be green, but not the experience of seeing or imagining a tree or wallpaper. Or if they are described as green or yellow, this can only be in a derived sense. Objection 5. It would make sense to say of a molecular movement in the brain that it is swift or slow, straight or circular. But it makes no sense to say this of the experience of seeing something yellow. Reply. So far we have not given sense to talk of experiences as swift or slow, straight or circular. But I am not claiming that experience and brain processes mean the same or even that they have the same logic. Somebody and the doctor do not have the same logic. But this does not lead us to suppose that talking about somebody telephoning is talking about someone over and above, say, the doctor. The ordinary man, when he reports an experience, is reporting that something is going on, but he leaves it open as to what sort of thing is going on, whether in a material solid medium, or perhaps in some sort of gaseous medium, or perhaps in some sort of non-spatial medium, if this makes sense. All that I'm saying is that experience and brain process may in fact refer to the same thing. And if so, we may easily adopt a convention. 
which is not a change in our present rules for the use of experience words, but an addition to them, whereby it would make sense to talk of an experience in terms of appropriate physical processes. Objection 6. Sensations are private, brain processes are public. If I sincerely say, I see a yellowish-orange afterimage, I am not making a verbal mistake, then I can not be wrong. But I can be wrong about a brain process. The scientist looking into my brain might have been having an illusion. Moreover, it makes sense to say that two or more people are observing the same brain process, but not that two or more people are reporting the same inner experience. Reply. This shows that the language of introspective reports has a different logic from the language of material processes. It is obvious that until the brain process theory is much improved and widely accepted, there will be no criteria for saying Smith has an experience of such and such a sort, except Smith's introspective reports. So we have adopted a rule of language that normally what Smith says goes. Objection 7. I can imagine myself turned to stone and yet having images, aches, pains and so on. Reply. I can imagine that the electrical theory of lightning is false, that lightning is some sort of purely optical phenomenon. I can imagine that lightning is not an electrical discharge. I can imagine that the evening star is not the morning star, but it is. All the objection shows is that experience and brain process do not have the same meaning. It does not show that an experience is not, in fact, a brain process. This objection is perhaps much the same as the one which can be summed up by the slogan, what can be composed of nothing cannot be composed of anything. The argument goes as follows. On the brain process thesis, the identity between the brain process and the experience is a contingent one. So it is logically possible that there should be no brain process and no process of any other sort either. No heart process, no kidney process, no liver process. There would be the experience but no corresponding physiological process with which we might be able to identify it empirically. I suspect that the objector is thinking of the experience as a ghostly entity. So it is composed of something, not of nothing, after all. On his view, it is composed of ghost stuff, and on mine, it is composed of brain stuff. Perhaps the counter-reply will be that the experience is simple and uncompounded, and so it is not composed of anything after all. This seems to be a quibble, for if it were taken seriously, the remark what can be composed of nothing cannot be composed of anything could be recast as an a priori argument against Democritus and atomism and for Descartes and infinite divisibility. And it seems odd that a question of this sort could be settled a priori. We must therefore construe the word composed in a very weak sense, 
which would allow us to say that even an indivisible atom is composed of something, namely itself. The dualist cannot really say that an experienced can be composed of nothing, for he holds that experiences are something over and above material processes, that is, that they are a sort of ghost stuff, or perhaps ripples in an underlying ghost stuff. I say that the dualist hypothesis is a perfectly intelligible one, but I say that experiences are not to be identified with ghost stuff, but with brain stuff. This is another hypothesis, and in my view a very plausible one. The present argument cannot knock it down a priori. I have now considered a number of objections to the brain process thesis. I wish now to conclude by some remarks on the logical status of the thesis itself. UT Place seems to hold that it is a straight out scientific hypothesis. If so, he's partly right and partly wrong. If the issue is between, say, a brain process thesis and a heart thesis or a liver thesis or a kidney thesis, then the issue is a purely empirical one, and the verdict is overwhelmingly in favour of the brain. The right sorts of things don't go on in the heart, liver or kidney, nor do these organs possess the right sort of complexity of structure. On the other hand, if the issue is between a brain or heart or liver or kidney thesis, that is, some form of materialism, on the one hand, and epiphenomenalism on the other hand, then the issue is not an empirical one, for there is no conceivable experiment which could decide between materialism and epiphenomenalism. This latter issue is not like the average straight out empirical issue in science, but like the issue between the 19th century English naturalist Philip Goss and the orthodox geologists and paleontologists of his day, according to Goss, the earth was created about 4000 BCE, exactly as described in Genesis, with twisted rock strata evidence of erosion and so forth and all sorts of fossils all in their appropriate strata just as if the usual evolutionist story had been true. Clearly this theory is in a sense irrefutable. No evidence can possibly tell against it. Let us ignore the theological setting in which Philip Goss's hypothesis has been placed, thus ruling out objections of a theological kind, such as what a queer god who would go to such elaborate lengths to deceive us. Let us suppose that it is held that the universe just began in 4004 BCE with the initial conditions just everywhere as they were in 4004 BCE, and in particular that our own planet began with sediment in the rivers, eroded cliffs, fossils in the rocks, and so on. No scientist would ever entertain this as a serious hypothesis, consistent though it is with all possible evidence. The hypothesis offends against the principles of parsimony and simplicity. There would be far too many brute and inexplicable facts. Why are pterodactyl bones just as they are? No explanation in terms of the evolution of pterodactyls from earlier forms of life would any longer be possible. 
We would have millions of facts about the world as it was in 4004 BCE that just have to be accepted. The issue between the brain process theory and the epiphenomenologicalism seems to be of the above sort. Assuming that a behavioristic reduction of introspective reports is not possible, if it be agreed that there are no cogent philosophical arguments which force us into accepting dualism, and if the brain process theory and dualism are equally consistent with the facts, then the principles of parsimony and simplicity seem to me to decide overwhelmingly in favour of the brain process theory. As I pointed out earlier, dualism involves a large number of irreducible psychophysical laws whereby the nomological danglers dangle of a queer sort that just have to be taken on trust and just as difficult to swallow as the irreducible facts about paleontology of the earth with which we are faced in Philip Goss's theory.